Of course, Harvard, you know, paid millions of dollars for its own model from a Nobel Prize winning economist who, unlike Peter Arsidiakono, who's actually published all of his work in the peer-reviewed literature, multiple places, multiple articles, uh, David Card, Nobel Prize winner, has not actually published his report anywhere because any econometrics professor who looks at it knows it's a bunch of crap. Um, and that's why he won't do it. Uh, and David Card, if you're listening, publish your stuff. See if you can get it through peer review. You will not be able to. Congratulations on the Nobel Prize. You got that after I cross-examined you. I should take some credit for it. I'm surprised you didn't name me in your acceptance speech. Go to hell. You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The only the eyes of the world are upon you. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast which is hosted at Substack, where listeners can support this work that I'm doing. WesleyYang.substack.com Your task will not be an easy one. ahead will be long. We're going to make sure the society wins. So I'm here with Adam Wirtara, addressing you from the other side of a landmark decision that Wirtara uh, has helped to usher into existence which um, removes the Supreme Court's constitutional sanction on the practice of racial preferences in college admissions and perhaps portends a whole new era in, uh, in, in, in the court and, and in American life. And so uh, I just want to take this moment to get uh, Mortara's uh, sense of, uh, you know, of, of what he's achieved and his, his feelings in the wake of an enormous victory. I think it was one that, and we'll get into this, uh, no one anticipated um, in its completeness back uh, when this, this case was filed back in 2014. But that was, that was always a possibility. And of course, that was the reason they went ahead with the case. Um, and so I want to get a full sense of the sweep of this as a, as a kind of movement in, in the history of American life and also uh, in his own role. And I guess we should begin just by getting your, your feelings uh, right now on the other side of uh, victory in students for fair admissions uh, versus Harvard University. Well, Thank you, Wesley. When I when the decision came out, um, of course, you know, I was sitting in my hotel room in D.C. Some of the guys had gone to the court. So the guys who are at the court, they can't read the decision uh, because it's being read. The summaries of it are being read from the bench. So I, I uh, the guys that are not in the court were furiously reading. Um, and it doesn't take long, actually, to come to the conclusion that this is you know, I, I've characterized it as either a nine and a half or a nine point nine out of ten of what students for fair admissions was asking for, and that is just—it was more than I expected. Even after the argument, um, there were essentially—and we'll talk about some of them. There's essentially zero qualifications. The one thing that we knew that was coming, which we'll talk about, was the statement that's made in part six of the majority opinion about essays. And then it's immediately taken back with, don't you dare construct uh, an essay bypass route to this decision. And the, the very next two sentences are just fabulous and more than we could possibly have asked for. Then you see there's an opinion from Justice Kavanaugh and you think to yourself, oh my gosh, what is he saying is okay? And he's not saying anything's okay. Uh, he, there's, there's nothing taken back in the concurring opinions of Justice Thomas's is a tour de force, which will be, which will go unrecognized by the mainstream, because for, for all the reasons that that he is so maligned, 
but it's it's incredible. And you know, I had my daughter, my twelve year old daughter, start reading it. Um, so all that happened, and then you know, on a rather personal note, I called my wife, and she she couldn't even understand me because I was bawling and in tears because I missed my friend uh, Will Consboy, who, when you say the long arc of this, I'll tell you the story of this case. Um, I'll tell you the story of two guys, you know, Will Consovoy and Adam Mortara, and all the other guys at Consovoy McCarthy I'll mention along the way. But Adam Mortara leaves the court in um, July this week, uh, 2023, two weeks after the Grutter decision comes out. Leave, I leave my clerkship with Clarence Thomas. And uh, we lost the, the Grutter case, or we, or Justice Thomas, lost the Grutter case. Hmm. And I didn't want to think about affirmative action ever again. And maybe however long later, the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative passes, and I kind of chuckled to myself, you know, you reap what you sow, Michigan University of, mm. um, and think that's, that's kind of makes me happy, you know, to see change like that. But I really don't want to think about it. And, and along comes this guy, Will Consovoy, who clerks for the court six years after me. And for whatever reason... He, he sees it differently. He sees the long arc and he sees it as a fight worth fighting to get rid of race discrimination in every aspect of American life, but also, but particularly college admissions. And he walks out of the court, not saying, I don't want to hear about this ever again. And I'm just going to go off and litigate IP cases and make money, which is what I did. He devotes his life to doing it. And he, and now I mean, literally his life, he died in January. Um, and he starts off doing the, the, the Fisher cases. Um, and you know, they, they get a partial victory in Fisher one and, and they, they ultimately lose in Fisher two. And the entire time, uh, you know, I, I, I know Will, I know we're friends when prime met around 2009, 2010. And I'd always, I mean, frankly, I'd always kind of pour, friendly skepticism on what he was doing. Um, I don't know why you think this is ever going to work out. Court stinks. You know, you, ne- you, you know, Kennedy's not going to stick with us. And I, the first argument I ever won with him was he was convinced that Kennedy would always hold the line against affirmative action because of his opinion in Grutter. And I, I said, I just, I just don't think it. He'll, he'll ditch us at the last second, which Kennedy did. Um, but we, I, I, I was very skeptical of the whole thing, even after the Harvard case was filed, even, you know, with the, the new, you could call it, I think it, I think it belittles the, the concept to call it a new angle. Um, but the new recognition that Asian Americans had a prominent voice and role to play in the discussion of whether these things were a good idea, permissible or constitutional, that new recognition, which came with the Harvard suit, I think I still told them, I don't know what you're doing. We're never going to win. Um, and then even after the 16 election, I, I don't think I changed my mind um, with the ascension of Justice Gorsuch and Justice Scalia's place. And that leads you all the way through to, um, you know, they filed the case in 2014 and they're litigating it, litigating it, litigating it. They being Consuet McCarthy, Will and his partner, Tom, they founded the firm. And eight weeks after they founded the firm, they filed the Harvard complaint. Mm-hmm. And um, so here's... I don't know what you want to call me, you know, maybe a more skeptical, jaded, um, 
less principled. I, I don't want to call myself less principled, but maybe that's what it was. Or less dedicated to fighting for principle. And he, Will calls me in April of 2018 and he says, we're going to have to try this case. My firm hasn't really tried any cases. We're not, not big ones. And I need help. I don't know what to do. I got these big firm lawyers on the other side and the case is going to go to trial. And I said, well, let me give you some names of some people that might help. And I never, I didn't volunteer myself. And uh, he called me back two weeks later. Will and I talked all the time, very close friends. He called me back two weeks later and he says, I've, it's like the Dick Cheney vice presidential search, search for George Bush. He calls me back and he says, I think the person that really should try this case for me is you. <laughs> and I, I just said, I don't know. I don't want to, this is not, that's not what I do. I try high stakes patent cases. I don't want to go down in history as the guy who killed affirmative action. Um, I actually said that to him. Yeah. I mean, all the, I said these things and he said, get on the case, just get on the protective order so that you can see confidential documents, do that. And you will, I will come to Chicago. I'll show you this stuff and you will agree. This is going to be the most important thing you've ever done. And I did. I trusted him, got on the case, saw the documents, saw the internal Harvard reports where it proved that they knew they were discriminating against Asians from the go. And I, you know, I walked out of the conference room. I'm now I'm going to reel. I'm kind of an emotional guy because I'm, and I got, I'm misting up to my firm's general counsel saying, we have to do this. We have to do it. Mm. And that's when, you know, Will got me off the sidelines. So I'm, so the day of the decision, my wife can't even understand me because I miss him so much. And I do. It's impossible to think about this case and not think about Will. And then, of course, you can't think about this case without thinking about Edward Bloom. The two are in, in, inseparable. Mm. And Edward, who's the nicest, sweetest guy in the world and is in no way a committed sort of right winger in any sense of the word, is, is just a man of principle on this issue. And he is the most mild, humble, modest, sweet guy who has just steadfastly fought for this issue. Like, um, you know, I, I mean, I, it's, I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a cultural analog. And all I keep thinking about is, is, you know, somebody who just can't even the d- defeat doesn't even process for him. He just picks mm. his, picks himself up and just keeps going. Mm. Um, I don't know. There's like this, this ball player. I saw a video of a minor league ball player called it to the majors for the first time at the age of like 37 or something. It was, you know, something like that. And I thought to myself, how steadfast must that guy have been to stick it out, to get his, mm-hmm. to get his big break, to get his call up at, at, at an advanced age. And, and Edwards the same way, you know, he's, he's just, he's never going to stop. No matter, we could have lost this case. Mm. And I swear to you, he would have yeah. been disappointed and said, what are we going to do next? Mm. And, and let's keep going. Mm. And absolutely he would have. And so you, you put those two guys together and, you know, I'm, I'm just the guy who tried the case and then, you know, has to try in a kind of minor way to carry on Will's legacy along with his partners at Conswer McCarthy, the greatest team on earth. So what did the court rule in this case? Well, I, I think the there's sort of three ways to think about it. 
Um, one is the is the most like, the easiest way is the court the court de facto overruled the previous Greta decision and said race can never be a consideration in college admissions. Period. No justification is ever going to uh, uh, be sufficient. Sorry for the dog. Um, no justification is ever going to be sufficient. Uh, and game over. The second layer to that is the court acknowledged some very important precepts that we have to put together to make to make the first what I would explain to my dad, who's not a lawyer. I'd say the first thing to my dad. The, the very important precepts are race can never be used in a negative way to affect somebody's admissions outcome. One. Two, because there's only a limited number of seats in the admissions framework, using race, even if you think it's in a positive way for candidate A, means that for candidate B that is not the same race, it's being used in a negative way, and therefore you fall afoul of the first principle. And, there, and that's how you get to race can never, ever be used. And a third way to understand the decision is it, it eliminates this very bizarre exception to the court's ordinary skepticism about racial classifications um, and just writes the law, but bizarre that it took 20 years for the court to do it, to get rid of this profound exception to the general rule that racial classifications are simply per se impermissible under the Constitution. Um, so that kind of is the same thing as number one, but it it has a normative valence to it, which is that that the, the, the affirmative action line of cases is, are always stood out as a very bizarre exception to the court's general hostility to racial classifications, um, certainly the Chief Justices and Justice Thomases, and, and that's a way to understand it, is fixing something that was wrong, which is a way a lot of people understand, you know, the Dobbs decision from, from last term. So it removes, it overrules de facto. You say Gruder does it? Overrule? Well, they didn't say it. They didn't say it in the majority opinion. Justice Thomas says it's it's quite obvious. Does it? Does it? Does it overrule the exception for the benefits of diversity that one could use race? I think it. I think it does because it says this. There's this is not a compelling state interest, and so I, I think absolutely there's no. There's no use of there's no use of race to that that can that can be authorized to advance that asserted interest. So, so it's not saying it's not saying diversity isn't good or important. Um, you know, I think an interesting thought hypothetical is: Can a university have preferences for men? so as to maintain a sex balance um, at a university because I think the sex balance is important. And of course, sex discrimination is treated differently than race discrimination. I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's an interesting one. I think it's probably one that will come up um, in, the, in the coming decades to follow because as you know, men and women have somewhat different uh, academic credentials coming into college. I don't think the, the court is saying diversity isn't an interest. I think it's saying it can't possibly be an interest that would ever justify race discrimination. So does it take us back to the world of 1977? Prior to the Baki? Yeah. Um, well, I think as a practical matter, no, because of course 
prior to Baki, people thought that you could even have quotas and it would be okay. Um, I I think it, it takes us back to a legal, a a but for legal world that could have existed if justice Stevens had prevailed in Baki uh, with, with the kind of, this is not possible period um, rule. But I don't think we've ever been, you think about the history of elite admissions, um, race has probably been used since Harvard started using it to keep Jews out in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So we have never been in a mode where there's been an express legal regime plus a kind of enforcement mechanism of private litigants and, and others to enforce a race blind admissions process since we went from our all testing based admissions process or open admissions where, you know, you went to the university and if you failed out, you failed out. Um, which was the Carabelle's book does a nice job of, of kind of going through the history of the admissions process. But in the hundred years or so that we've had individualized holistic admissions, I don't think we've ever had it race blind or as close to race blind as we are going to get it. Cause of course there is that exception for, uh, essays that's discussed in Chief Justice Roberts's opinion, um, and and nothing can be tr- nothing that involves human actors who can see a name like Wesley Young or or you know or even Adam Mortara. Although sometimes I get mistaken for being Japanese instead of Italian. Uh, no, it's not possible to get race completely out of a system that's run by humans. Um, but we're going to be as close as we could possibly get. And so Harvard uh, immediately they issued a statement. Uh, it looked like it was prepared before the opinion came out. They must have known it was coming. Uh, saying, um, you know, the court has said that we can, uh, you know, we can uh, make reference uh, to, you know, that uh, candidates can make reference to the role that, uh, you know, race has had in their uh, individual developments and we will be complying with, uh, with that aspect sort of signaling that, that there's going to be a stronger emphasis on the, uh, the essays is mm-hmm. that, um, uh, this is of course something, something that, uh, that the, uh, that Roberts, um, dealt with, uh, in his decision, but, uh, you already have people sort of saying, Oh, this is actually going to make things worse. What is your, what is your, it's going to turn, essays even more into the trauma porn that they already are based upon race. And that will be the loophole that will undo the whole impact of this decision. Is that uh, right I, or wrong? Or you're- that's it's, it, it's wrong in the sense that uh, it can't possibly undo the whole impact of the opinion. Mm. It's it, 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 it does no more than restate kind of the, the Wesley uh, Yang Adam Mortara joke I just made which is that you can't remove from people's brains all consciousness of the racial identity of the person that they're dealing with, even if you remove the checkbox, which it seems likely that uh, all institutions will do because there's no lawful use to be made of the checkbox. Um, you can't do it. I mean, you know, there are kids called Kwong and, and, and Ma and Park Although Park maybe is Lee, Lee is always one that you can you can be any race and have Lee as your last name, but you know it, it's not possible, right? So the this point about the essays, of course, it will, and you use the phrase trauma porn. Of course, it will inspire kids to to talk about race, um, 
probably a lot because I think it'll help them. But the chief justice said quite clearly, don't you dare turn this into a, a, a mechanism to, to flout or an end around of what we're saying about race. And so imagine a circumstance where, yes, you know, I overcame racial prejudice can be on, that can be on you know, white applicants, uh, essays. It certainly can be on Asian applicants. Essays. I mean, when you look at, you know, the last three years and the, the incredible rise in um, anti-Asian or seemingly, seemingly incredible rise. I mean, I guess I'm going on what I see uh, in anti-Asian violence uh, and uh, expressions, which some have attributed to the coronavirus pandemic, which, uh, as you can tell my, from my voice, I don't think that's really why it's happening. Um, I don't think that's what, why you think it's happening, reading your writings. Uh, you, you know, it's certainly true that Asians will be able to write about this in a meaningful and persuasive way. And if you're treating Asian kids differently when they write about hardship from racial discrimination than you are from treating African-American black kids when they're writing about hardship and racial discrimination, then that's illegal. And that's what Chief Justice Roberts is saying. And we'll be able to prove it. I mean, it, it won't be that hard to prove. And there will be whistleblowers. There will be people inside these institutions that will say, no, no, we're doing it wrong. And also think about whether you know, a Harvard admissions officer, how are they going to keep track of these things? I mean, this guy is black with racial, racial hardship. This guy is Asian with racial hardship. Okay, well, once you've written down that one is black and one is Asian, that's the exact thing the court says is illegal. Mm. And so I think it's going to be very difficult. And the other point I'll make, which is one I think I've made to you previously, which is there's sort of two ways discrimination happen at Harvard. And that, by extension, you know, it's all the same. Every elite institution uh, discrimination could have occurred this way. We know it occurred this way at Harvard because we have all the evidence. Um, one is the individual admissions officer making a judgment about the candidate. That's the, mostly what we've been talking about. Uh, oh, uh, you know, uh, Alan Shu wants to be a doctor. He's got 1,600 on his SATs. Um, he's a champion debater. But you know what? Uh, I, I, there was, I got 100 Alan Shoes. So guess what? You're kind of a dime a dozen. You get a personal rating of a three. Whereas, you know, Jim White uh, over here, he's, he's black and he's got like a, a great SAT score and he wants to be a doctor and he's a champion debater. Oh my gosh, there's only one of these every X years. I got to get him in personal rating one. That's, that's how it worked at Harvard is that African-Americans were systematically benefited by the admissions officers assigning them higher personal ratings. That's one of the primary ways in which this worked. And Asian Americans were dramatically, dramatically crushed by just their numerosity and stereotyping. Uh, that's an individual admissions officer. The other way that it worked is there was exquisite um, control over the ultimate composition of the student body done from the top, that kind of the macroscopic way that race discrimination worked. And the Dean would say, give me my racial stats. I mean, we have emails that said, Dean Fitzsimmons wants his racial stats. I mean, can you imagine? Mm. And he would get like a cute little spreadsheet with the racial breakdown of the admitted class as it was forming up. And of course they had total control over the ultimate demographic configuration of the class. And, and they kept it basically the same for Asians for over a decade until we filed the lawsuit. And then they kind of let loose on it a little bit. That second piece, I mean, you can't even imagine somebody in the post- Students for Fair Admissions Against Harvard era, 
asking for the aggregate racial statistics on the composition of the incoming class as it's being formed, no way. No one will take that risk. It's profoundly and per se illegal now, and it, it just won't happen. So you can take race out of that, the macroscopic race out. And then finally, to, to the people who say well, the, the essay thing takes it all back, I'd say the following. Admissions officers, they're not, they're not evil generally, and they're going to do their best. And they're going to try to follow the law. They're not going to talk about race outside of the context, this extremely limited context they've been given. And taking the conversation out of the room mm. means race will just have a less of an impact on admissions, period. And is it going to be perfect? No system would be perfect. But is it going to be a giant step? I'm utterly convinced of it. So in addition to the essay loophole, we have uh, many colleges that in the years uh, prior to this decision, and perhaps, and, and I believe you would, you may or may not agree, uh, in anticipation of what people understood the decision was going to be, uh, began uh, making uh, the SAT test optional in some cases under a uh, a pretext of uh, of uh, you know of COVID nineteen exception. In other cases, I think in California, they just said we're not going to take the SAT into consideration anymore. And in fact, it's not just test optional; they they won't look at your test, right? Uh, I think mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah. Um, so there has been a sea change, um, and, uh, and and the question now is um, is that is that are they doing that in order to increase their 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 discretion to engineer? Uh, in uh, racial outcomes, and is that going to be? Uh, you've indicated that uh, further litigation is probably, uh, you know, going to end up necessary to, and uh, you know, to surveil and to enforce compliance. Um, but, but, but uh, uh, th there is this sense that the universities are going to manage to. Uh, th they, they have signaled. And they have an interest in um, continuing the kind of racial status quo. Is that going to be impossible in your view, or and is it something that they're seeking now already? I don't think it's it's going to be impossible using the mechanism that they had before. I mean, keep keep in mind how hard they fought to keep the mechanism. Another point to make, kind of related to what we were just talking about, is I mean, can, when you look at the number of uh, recipients of of race preferences, particularly African-Americans, for instance, at Harvard, and you look at the, the socioeconomic distribution of these people or whether they are, in fact, um, uh, the, child, the children of immigrants, uh, African immigrants or Caribbean immigrants to this country. It's a lot, and it's going to be much harder for, for them to kind of make themselves eligible for what the Chief Justice is talking about, Part 6. But going to the kind of test optional or test, um, test banned approaches, I think – we're starting to veer into a, a, a much larger discussion of what is going on with race in America. Um, you know, you and I have talked uh, previously about the, the outsized uh, participation at the upper echelons of academic performances of Asian Americans. Um, so you have Asian Americans dominating you know, they're like 50% of the top 20% of academic applicants to Harvard in our data set. And they're only 6-7% of the population, but they're half of the top 20% academically. Um, you see that happening. At the same time, you see um, 
whether it's responsive to pandemic or for whatever other reasons, lowering, falling off of, of black, white, and um, Hispanic SAT, ACT scores. Um, and it's kind of impossible not to view uh, the sort of test optional, test banned approaches as a response to whether it's a racist response or not is a different question. A response to Asian Americans having broken college admissions and, and broken's got a valence to it. I don't know. Broken's bad. Sometimes you want to break things to make them better. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's not bad. I'm not trying to say it's bad that this occurred, but the, the disjunctive effects that for instance, California's approach has had, it's been reported on about, you know, certain high schools that are predominantly Asian getting absolutely destroyed in terms of their, their acceptance rates at the, the flagship campuses, uh, that, that effect should reasonably have been anticipated by the UC system. And if it was, then was it the reason that they did it? And this gets back to a broader social arc to what the chief justice is saying in the majority opinion. Even if the, the, the equity minded folks, at the university of California or wherever where they ban tests or make tests optional, are thinking to themselves, I want to increase, um, you know, African-American, Latino representation on our campus. The tests have some kind of problem with them, and I will increase representation by getting rid of the tests. Even if that's all they thought, it's the zero-sum game nature of the whole thing means Asian-Americans are disadvantaged by that decision, period. That's what the Chief Justice is saying at the micro level when you're talking about admissions at Harvard or UNC, but it's also true at the kind of macro level when you talk about, are we going to have a test or not have a test? Um, and so that impulse, uh, the equity impulse uh, is one that goes way beyond college admissions. And it's part of what I think you've called the successor ideology. Mm. Uh, it's a significant part of that. And no Supreme Court decision is going to eliminate the successor ideology. Mm. Right. So there, there's, there's kind of two long marches through the institutions that begin in the 1980s, right? So the Federal Society begins, I think, around 1986 or so mm -hmm. with, with the idea that we're going to, the conservatives are going to take the Supreme Court. And right around 1989, there is the first conference. I think it was held at a UCLA on critical race theory. And, and, uh, and they go on through a different long march to the institutions. They don't take the court, but they take our cultural apparatus and they take our educational apparatus. And right around 2019, both of these separate long marches through the institutions reach a kind of culmination because right around that time that, 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 that it becomes clear that critical race theory can come out into the open and uh, and and uh, announce itself as uh, you know revolutionizing. Uh, I think that that was the year of the 1619 project, right? And that's so that's the moment of the kind of unveiling. And of course, that was also the moment of the uh, the five four court, which then becomes the six three court uh, mm -hmm. soon afterwards. Um, and now we see we're going to see the relative value of the investments the left made in taking over the cultural apparatus and the educational apparatus versus the investments the right made in taking the court. And the court is very powerful, <laughs> is, 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 is what it 
turns out to be at the same time, in between the time uh, you launched uh, SFA, uh, SFFA versus, uh, uh, versus Harvard um, and the decision between 2014 and, and 2023, we have, those are the years in which a kind of ideological succession happens where an elite consensus coalesces uh, that, 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 that the government and other agencies should be ever more explicit in the way that we uh, favor uh, certain groups, racially balanced, have quotas. We have major corporations after the summer of 2020 saying, you know, basically announcing their quotas for, you know, by race uh, in terms of, you know, who we're going to have in leadership at Microsoft, at Google, other places, uh, you know, sort of Uber uh, gives free business, uh, you know, gives free uh, delivery from black owned businesses, uh, you know, the government. Um, explicitly uh, favors, um, you know, the provision of certain life-saving medicines on the basis of race. Um, and some of these things have already been sort of, uh, you know, the courts have, uh, the courts have, have rolled these things back, but there is, there is a powerfully consensus that came into, uh, you know, that coalesced right before the court struck down racial preferences in university admissions. So what do you think uh, that portends? I mean, the court has signaled what their intentions are, um, uh, but, there, but, but um, is there going to be a kind of massive resistance uh, emerging from corporate America, in your view, or, uh, or is the decision going to change that trajectory and give people uh, sort of an opportunity to take a breath and say, you know, do, do, we, do we actually want to become the uh, you know the, the racially redistributive state that that our that that our government and and uh, corporate apparatus seem to be on the way uh, of moving. Wow, that's a, that's a lot. I think um, a couple. So one way in which I think about it is start with the university level, um, which is I mean universities are obviously just captured by uh, culturally captured by the left, and everybody knows that. So yeah. Think about going. There's there's, a, there's always a general counsel at a university, and the general counsel's job is to keep the university in compliance with the law and manage risk. Um, go to the general counsel and say, you know, we're using race in admissions, um, but you know everybody else does it, and you know it's really important to us. Can we do it? And the general counsel wisely will say, I'm not going to mess with a core mission of the university. Um, so yeah, everybody else does it. We're going to do it. A, a, a corporation's core mission is not, not no corporation's core mission is race discrimination. You know, Target's core mission is not race discrimination or whoever else, um, Bud Light's core, core Anheuser-Busch's core mission is not race discrimination. And now the conversation is going to change and the general counsel is going to say, you know what, this is really not, I, I can go to the CEO and say, this is risky. And I think yeah. that that changes the conversation. And at the university level, um, you know, some of these, for instance, scholarships that are apportioned on the basis of race or to give another example, I mean, most of the premier, in fact, I think all the premier law reviews at the law schools have like an express racial diversity component to their selection. I can't even imagine a university council that would allow that to persist when it's so kind of adjacent 
to the core mission of the university. It's not about who can get in. It's like, we're going to let these kids race discriminate in the selection of people for law. No way. We're going to get sued. Forget it. You're done. And, and in that sense, you know, this will change that conversation. It might change it less at the universities than it will change it in the C-suites. But I think it will change the conversations because the, the lawyers will, who are generally speaking risk managers will now have to weigh you know, the internal revolt that occurs at a place like Disney when they don't say something about don't say gay or whatever, or the internal revolt that happens at Amazon when they have you know, some movie on Amazon Prime that has got a, some conservative valence and it upsets people or something. That's got to be balanced against the legal risk. And the legal risk just went up you know, a hundredfold. All these companies are doing all these things are so blatantly illegal you can't even imagine it. The 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 Grutter opinion never authorized and the Supreme Court has never said it was okay, but they're all getting away with it because they're all pointing at each other saying, Wow, you know, everybody's doing it. This even is occurs at law firms. Um, you know, the 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 number of law firms that will uh, that will go along with a client demand to staff a case on the basis of race, it's totally illegal. Um, are they gonna keep doing it? they're going to get sued. And this opinion breaks open all sorts of different aspects of American life where race has been overused and says, uh, no more. It doesn't say that in the text of the opinion, but I think that's going to be the impact. Is it going to be enough to stem the tide of the ideological forces we're arrayed against? And come back to the Asian Americans, 7% of the population, 50% of the top 20% of the applicants at Harvard. Um, they're only 7% of the population. And it's not like they vote Republican in, in massive numbers. And even if they did, it doesn't, it's not huge enough. You can make changes in the margins, but you know, the, the, the people that are adversely impacted by these equity programs are, are highly concentrated um, in some, to some degree. Uh, and whether this gets people out, to, to make political statements in the most important form, which is voting, I don't know. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine when you think about the coming election, it's really hard to imagine it being an election about race preferences. Uh, or an it's somewhat easier to think it may be an election about um, cultural issues and on the other side that you write and speak about quite often, which is the gender affirming care side of the equation, harder to see it being about race preferences. So um, let's go back to the case. Sure. What did you, what did you prove? Well, I think what the court is saying is that we proved that Harvard was not telling the truth about the sizable effect of race on its admissions process. They always said it's a factor of a factor of a factor and USC as well. Um, they always said it's a factor of a factor of a factor. And the court says, that's not the case. I think we, we, it, it shouldn't have taken proof, but we got rid of the silliness that race could be always be a plus and never be a minus the kind of anti-mathematical illogic of the Fisher two decision. Um, we got rid of that. I think the court, both in Chief Justice Roberts's opinion and in Justice Thomas's opinion, kind of takes it as read that there is an outsized adverse impact on Asian Americans of race preferences. 
Um, there's not a lot of, there's not a ton of explanation of the mechanisms by which that happens, but there's acknowledgement, um, in Chief Justice Roberts's opinion of the, the decline in Asian American, uh, admissions rates as a result of these race preferences. And you, even just linking those two things kind of accepts that we were right about Asian discrimination uh, taking place. And there's a similar discussion of historic discrimination against Asian Americans and Justice Thomas's opinion. Um, I think the there's not a lot, a ton of disagreement, except maybe from Justice Jackson and the UNC case about how the admissions programs operated. And in that sense, we proved what was apparent from the discovery, um, which is discovery that Harvard gave us because we filed the lawsuit and because Harvard, for whatever reasons, turns out to be strategically rather poor decisions for them, chose not to move to dismiss the case and just get into discovery and give us six years of data and all their internal documents. And I think the court's reacting to all of that. So I think what we proved is that Harvard wasn't using race a little bit and that there were, there was a a profound negative impact on Asian American applicants as a result. And what was it that you saw because you described this moment where he said, come in and look at these confidential documents. You went in there saying that I don't want to be the person who, I don't want to go down history as the person who ended affirmative action. Why did you feel that way? And what changed your mind about what you saw in those documents that he showed you? You know, and I think this is a, this is a significant uh, almost confession to make. Uh, my kid is 12. She was born in 2010. I hadn't really started to think about college admissions for her. And she's, you know, by any, by anybody's definition, she's privileged and she's white. Um, she could have been the plaintiff and, you know, in another use a time machine, she could have been the plaintiff. She could have been Barbara Grutter or Abigail Fisher. And it's not that I don't agree with what Edward Bloom has historically been trying to do, which is eliminate race discrimination. It's more that I never felt like it was, I think the best way to put it is it seemed to me an extremely distributed harm on white applicants admissions chances. And there were bigger fish to fry in the world of th- of wrongs I wanted to write than somebody having to go to Duke instead of Harvard or whatever. Um, at the same time, you know, <laughs> I was in like an Asian fraternity in college. We're all about the same age. Um, my uh, sister-in-law in law and my brother-in-law's wife is Chinese and they have four Chinese American kids, but we're, but they're all the kids. I don't have a single friend of mine yet from college whose kid has gone to college. And so we hadn't really started to have this discussion yet. You know, going back to 2018 when Will called me, my kid was not even eight. And when he took me to that room, what he showed me was, and I hadn't appreciated, even though I, you know, I kind of knew, I guess, that Asian Americans were getting hosed at some level. I hadn't appreciated the degree. And 
I think on top of that, what really just shook me was that Harvard knew all about it. They'd commissioned an internal study. What he showed me was the internal documents that, that after this came out in, in 2013, David Brooks wrote a piece in the New York Times about how important it was based on this piece by this guy, Ron Unz, who's kind of a, a loon. I mean, honestly, Ron Unz's piece in the American Conservative, which nobody reads, says Harvard's discriminating against Asians. And then the second part of it says, and they're doing it to help Jews. And it's very weird. Um, but Brooks picks up the first piece, makes kind of blows it up into the big public stuff. And Harvard goes to work and they commission an internal research study on whether this is true. The internal research study concludes it is true. And Harvard literally, the guy hits Simmons, puts it in a garbage can. He doesn't tell his direct superior, uh, the dean of students at Harvard College. He doesn't tell his number two, the director of all of admissions at Harvard, uh, Mar Marlon McGrath. He doesn't tell her. He doesn't tell anybody. He puts it in the garbage. And, I, and when, you, when you realize that the guy, maybe he thought that everything was fine. Maybe. I doubt it, actually. He gets a, he gets a report, an internal report, about his, his, the very thing that he does. And it says, you're discriminating against Asians. And his response is, working as intended. I'm not going to tell anybody. That is when I realized, my gosh. And I started thinking about, and I mean, there are principles at work here. I believe that no one should discriminate on the basis of race in college admissions or anywhere. But it became deeply personal to me at the point where I started to think, my gosh, if they're doing this, others are doing it. Um, I have my, my Chinese nieces and nephews. I don't want them to go through this. I got my Filipino godson. I got you know, all my buddies from college whose kids are my daughter's age. My daughter's white. Their kids aren't. This is not right. And I, I guess where, where maybe I started was, okay, so the distributed harm on whites isn't so bad. But the concentrated harm on Asians is really bad. And they apparently are unwilling to have to just to not have the second thing. There's no, I became convinced, will convince me there's no state of the world which you can give them the tool that they can use race and they won't disproportionately visit those harms on Asian Americans. And, you know, somebody will rightly criticize me and say, well, it's all well and good for you to declare that you don't care about the distributed harms on whites. But I was profoundly influenced by Justice Thomas's opinion in Grutter, where you can search in vain in that opinion for, for a mention of the plaintiff. Mm. Um, he himself cared more about the impact on the recipients of affirmative action, mm. uh, apparently, than, than he talked about the white plaintiff. And, and to me, it didn't seem that big of a deal until you realize that this was a tool that was being used in, in, a per, in a pernicious and evil way against a, ver a very small group of Americans. Mm. And that is, is just wrong in a way that maybe I'm making excuses, but I didn't perceive it to be that way when I thought it was just a distributed harm on whites. Well, this, this very small group of Americans, uh, as you were saying, they exerted a kind of pressure on the admissions process, if you wanted to balance things racially, it's just very difficult when you have a group 
it's it's only a pressure if you but it's only a pressure if you start first and foremost by believing that an asian kid is different from a white kid in some meaningful way that the university should care about and that's what made me insane you know and that that goes back to having been in basically an asian fraternity in not wasn't it's not one of the you know asian greek letter fraternities it's just i was in a fraternity most of the guys were asian um you know the idea to me Mm-hmm. That that somehow we should value a white applicant differently from an Asian applicant, I, I, I found so violently offensive that that I I couldn't believe it. But you're right. It's when you look at everything through the lens of race, then Asian Americans broke the admissions process, and there's just so so many of them, and and we can't have Harvard crawling with Chinese and Koreans and Indians um, as different as those three groups are. Uh, and that's exactly what Lowell said when he didn't want Harvard to be crawling with immigrant Jews in the early 20th century. It's the exact same thing. So the immigrant Jews did not seek or obtain a court remedy. Well, keep in mind, I mean, they, they, they generally kept the quota secret for a long time. Yeah. So they, they didn't know. And also, I mean, there's a, and I think this is something I, I don't know, you know, kind of what your reaction to is, but there's a, Historically, you read, um, you know, Carabell's book, yep. Harvard co-opted kind of the, the third, fourth generation, fifth generation Jewish alumni of Harvard to agree. It wasn't, wasn't all the Jews that were being, uh, quoted out of Harvard. Yeah. Um, it was, it was immigrant Jews that they were really targeting. And, and in the same sense here, and I don't mean to, I wouldn't use a word like you know quizzling or anything like that. There are groups of Asian students at Harvard, alumni of Harvard, that were rah rahing this whole thing the whole way. And I mean, one of the most difficult conversations to have is with a kid who is Asian, like Chinese American kid, at one of these universities, and many of them don't want to believe. They believe that because they made it. They, they almost don't want to believe that there is discrimination. I mean, this is kind of, you see this refrain kind of in the, in the, um, I wouldn't even call it, uh, maybe you call this midwit, but you call it the midwit and lower like, sort of commentary on this. How can it be race discrimination? They're 27% of the Harvard class now, and they're only yeah. 6% of the population. Well, it's pretty easy. Um, there's like a 50 to 100 of them that are not being admitted to Harvard because of race discrimination and they'd be 35% if we didn't have race or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but people kind of don't understand that. And so, so, so too, you know, I think a lot of Asian alumni of Harvard and current students, like they believe because they're there somehow that proves there's no discrimination. Well, they're an overrepresented group relative to their share of the population, but they're underrepresented relative to their academic yeah. and extracurricular. And when you look at the alumni, uh, I mean, rec- they're, they're frankly, the alumni are bought off with the legacy preferences. You know, so, you know, legacy preferences are inherent tension with, um, with race preferences in the, in the sense that they work cooperatively when you have both of them. Legacy preferences generally for whites but then you got too many white people. So you have race preferences to kind of fix it when you don't have one of them race preferences, then legacy preferences, which after all, you know, Asian alumni of Harvard were probably selfishly fans of, and I'm not casting aspersions. I just gave you an explanation for my selfish reasons for getting involved in the case. I think 
most people act selfishly most of the time. Um, they, these, these preferences are on it, are, 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 are really under threat now, the legacy preferences. I mean, there's no the, way not to think about it that way. I mean, there's nothing constitutionally suspect about them, but, uh, but there's, a um, if they're, if they're, if they were used, if they were used for the purpose of, of admitting more whites, they'd be illegal but for the same reason mm-hmm. that chief justice is saying you can't create an essay bypass route. Um, but that's not, that's apparently not why they exist. Um, I mean, Arcadiacano's finding is, was that uh, in, in the absence of both race preference and legacy Nathalie preferences, you'd have slightly more whites than you have. It would just be the incumbent Poor class. Whites. Yeah. The, the incumbent class that the university continues to serve as one of their core constituencies uh, would be replaced by, you know, bright kids from the Midwest or others who are not. Well, that. That's a really, that's a really, I mean, I, I think it's hard to have this discussion about race and missions without talking about this legacy stuff. I mean, you look at everybody on, on Twitter on the left, and this is the only thing they want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about it too. I mean, Edward Bloom wants to talk about it. We should get rid of these things. Yeah. Uh, I think the struggle for me has been with somewhat libertarian impulses some of the time. You know, why should we be over-focused on regulating Harvard, a private institution, if it wants to have these legacy preferences and rah-rah, it's alumni with dumber kids. When I say dumber, I mean uh, Professor Arsidiakono's findings are 70% of, the, of this group, the ALDC group, athletes, legacies, donor, dean's list. We call them donors. You get on the dean's list because you're a donor. And children of faculty, 70% of them would not be admitted to Harvard but for the preferences. And before you think that's a lot about athletes, athletes are like 100% admission. The legacy weight on that is gigantic if you look at his work. I mean, it's, it's, it's as big as some of the race preferences. It's not as big as African-Americans. But it's it's it, I think bigger than the Hispanic preference. Well, I so, just read that Harvard uh, legacies they have a higher average SAT than the non. But they probably do. But average average belies. Okay. A, a, average when you talk about averages, you're you're yeah. you're not looking at the impact that has on the the bubble candidate, which is gigantic. I just I had this debate with somebody on Twitter actually. Um, it, they're they're not unqualified. But yeah. the average SAT at Harvard is driven down substantially by the beneficiaries of race preferences whose average whose SAT scores are dramatically lower. Okay. And so, um, so when you, you say at, non-legacy, I mean, you're, you're, that has been affected by that. So correct, correct. Yeah. So, so um, as I said, I think we got it. We've got to talk about these legacy preferences in the same breath. Why, why should we regulate Harvard? And my answer to is, is this, and I think this goes to kind of broader things that, that, that we should be discussing. Harvard is a privilege. I called it a privilege mill the other day, you know, and, and the value, the social value of a Harvard degree apparently is quite high. And, and therefore they kind of are redistribute they're, they're kind of giving that value in a hereditary sense when they use his legacy preferences to the children of Harvard alumni and not opening up the, the value of the Harvard degree to newcomers or not, not sufficiently. And as long as we're going to have a world where you're more likely to become president of the United States, if you went to Harvard or become a Supreme court justice or whatever, or become, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's buddy who makes a lot of money, whatever it is, as long as we're going to have that world, it shouldn't be hereditary. It's kind of antithetical to the American project. And so we should, that's where I get over my libertarian impulse and say, you know what, you want to have this outsized role in American society, we should regulate you, you should not be allowed to do this, 
there's some Democrats who propose legislation to ban this stuff. I think I I can't understand why it's not an 80, 20 bipartisan issue. Now, now nobody can, uh, nobody could gain say the strategy of Harvard as if if we conceive of them as brand managers over the last hundred years, right? They, and, and the way they have done, the way they have succeeded so much and are the, you know, in possession, I think of a $53 billion uh, endowment is that they held in balance these three different claims. Like one of them is, is that like we're the best college, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. um, And, and we have the best students. Uh, We also are at the vanguard or the cutting edge of uh, social justice. So, um, and, and so we seek diversity. Uh, And at the same time, we also, Part of our value proposition is is that we is that we allow the, the you know the the bright people that we choose who are not children of privilege to mingle with the children of privilege, right? And so it's, it's all part of the the the, the value proposition. Um, so you know so you have Zuckerberg and you have Eduardo Savaran and you have the Winklevoss twins, right? Like all there at the same time in order to create this thing. That, uh, that that can only be a kind of product a product of ingenuity and uh, meeting uh, capital, <laughs> right? And and uh, and, uh, and and of you know inherited wealth and and the entitlement that goes with it. And that is our that is our brand proposition, and it's it's the reason why uh, it, it it may be the 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 the, the the leading American brand, right? The, uh, uh, and it turned out, though, that that we airdropped into this country, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, 17 million people who who have been determining the life chances of their children on the basis of a single highest stakes uh, examination, you know, for you know for a thousand years or so, um, and. That small minority was, you know, they were super selected, right? Uh, they, they, you know, they were uh, not just a, a representative sample of immigrants from those countries. Uh, you know, are, are, are half of all the highly numerate, high-scoring uh, students in America. Um, and that kind of balancing between those three different things put Harvard into a position where they couldn't keep their brand together in the way they needed to without racially discriminating. <laughs> that, 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 I, I, I laughed in the middle of what you were saying because it, it, it is extraordinarily similar to the way I've described um, Harvard admissions when I've talked uh, to people around the country over the last several years, with the exception of the fact that it was, it was, it was wildly pro-Harvard because it was a brand articulation. Yep. And the way I would say it is Harvard exists. There's three groups at Harvard, same zero three. You know, there's, there's recipients of race preferences who generally who wouldn't get in without them. There's the shoot the lights out genius kids who are there to maintain the, the identity of Harvard as a place where there's shoot the lights out genius kids. And then there's the children of legacies and donors and stuff. And the entire purpose of the first two groups is to credential the third. And the entire the utility function of Harvard is to maintain the privilege of the children of Harvard alumni and major donors to Harvard. And you need to have 
you can't have an all white university or whatever, or all white and Asian university because that'll make people feel bad. So we have to have the recipients of race preferences. And it's really just as Justice Thomas called it aesthetics. They're there to make people feel okay. And then you have the middle group. It's really, I mean, it's really, uh, uh, frankly, uh, kind of cynical. My, this is a very cynical view, but I think this is what's true. The middle group is the geniuses you have to have there so the place doesn't lose its reputation as a producer of geniuses. But the whole thing is designed for the privilege group. And, and that's where, you know, my attitude becomes the world isn't going to end if these kids have to go to, you know, Tulane or whatever. And guess what? Everybody who works hard, you graduate um, Tulane with straight A's. And if you're really smart and hardworking, you're going to do just fine in the world. And uh, this, these legacy preferences, which, which are, to me are the, it's not the tail, right? They're, they're, they're the dog and the rest of it's the tail. Mm. Um, they're what has to go. And I, I, I did say a couple of years ago, I probably said it publicly, you know, I thought that given the choice between racial diversity and the legacy preferences, they would choose racial diversity because they would fear the backlash if they didn't. I now wonder if they'll use Students for Fair Admissions and Edward Bloom as kind of the fall guy for not doing that. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's Students for Fair Admissions' fault that the number of African-Americans at Harvard is going to drop from 15% to whatever it is. It's that Students for Fair Admissions' fault, and it's Edward Bloom's fault. We're not going to get rid of the legacy preferences. That's not why this is happening. Look at what we could do before Students for Fair Admissions. Um, I don't know. I think they'll they'll cling on to the legacy preferences until somebody, you know, forcibly breaks their grip on them. I I, I didn't think that three years ago. I I do think that today. So in 1925, uh, when when you know they had they had a bunch of college uh, board examinations. It wasn't the SAT, uh, but anybody could take them, and 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 a bunch of Eastern European Jews started to take them and to. And to score really high, and the uh, and so the Jewish representation went past the point where the brand managers of Harvard in 1925 felt comfortable with it, and so they well, in particular, in particular, they saw what happened at Columbia, mm. because the, what they were really feared was that at Columbia, I think that there was sort of a tipping point at which Gentiles decided they didn't want to go to Columbia because it got a reputation as a Jewish right college, yeah, and and that's what Harvard was reacting. Keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they created this holistic admissions uh, in order to in order to hide their discriminatory intent, but they managed to squeeze it down from I think twenty eight to thirteen percent, right? In in, mm -hmm. in a few years, and that's that's the history. That's where their brand proposition was back then. But uh, you know, in the fifties and sixties, America is rising to global leadership. Uh, we have this civil rights problem. Um, it. You know, it, and, and there's also a need to uh, modernize themselves and become, you know, centers of serious scholarship. So their brand proposition no longer, right, is about being, a, you know, a club for, you know, a, a small group of New Englanders. Um, and so they use the SAT to rationalize themselves, become national, uh, and to and to attract geniuses. Uh, you know, who, who are Jewish, who are Italian-American. It's the reason our leadership class has people with names like Yellen and Fauci and so on, which would have been surprising to, you know, A. Lawrence, uh, right, 
uh, you know, back in 1925. It was something that he had set out to prevent. Um, but all along, as you're saying, there still was this core connection to the, you know, to the Mayflower families that had founded this country in the 16th, in the 17th century. Well, I mean, I, that, I just think, I just think they, they allowed, they allowed more families, they allowed more families on the boat in the sense yeah. that is, you know, if you were in the club, once you're in the club, you're in. Yeah. And there's, they don't, they don't, I don't think they really treat any different, you know, the kind of the historical New England aristocracy than they do to Bill Lee, who's Harvard's lawyer. I mean, his, I, I think his kids went to Harvard. I don't know, but he's yeah. on the board of Harvard and he's Chinese. I mean, yeah. I don't think they care. I think they're yeah. letting more families onto the Mayflower. Once you're on, you're on. Right. But it is a it's it's a it's a privilege granting machine, and then it and it has an intergenerational dimension to it, um, and they diversify at the pace that they want to diversify, and mm-hmm. they, they did not want, uh, you know, they, they didn't want to become a Jewish college in 1925 by they didn't want to become an immigrant Asian college in 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 2025 um, basically. But by the 60s, the progeny of those Eastern European Jews were no longer uh, what they were in 1920, right? And now, well, and, now uh, you're getting to the point that Unz makes in the second half of his article, yeah, which is which others have made, which is that the second and third generation, the third generation and the fourth generation, um, and this is this is a point made in a book. Um, um, I think, it, well, maybe it's not me. I thought it was made maybe made in this book called "Paying for the Party." Which uh, is about the experience of of some young women at at the University of Indi- at Indiana University, but yeah. the 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 idea is that you accrue social capital, yeah. And if you have social capital, which is yeah. to say, you know, I could pick up the phone and call a judge, and and maybe get my daughter if she was going to be a lawyer like a job with a yeah. judge or with a law firm, and that's social right. capital that I've accrued. If you accrue yeah. social capital, then you don't need to work as hard for the other types of capital. That, that you could get, and so in the fourth generation, where yeah. these now now immigrant Jews have been here for four generations, they have the yeah. social capital. They don't need to strive as hard. Yeah, but but Asians, which are the largest growing immigrant group in America, have essentially no social capital, or the, the large majority of them have no social capital. So in yeah. the fourth generation, if we get a new immigrant group coming to this country, they'll be the ones busting the. So you don't have to win. You don't have to win the Intel, uh, you know, science competition, and you don't. <laughs> you, you, no. you 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 become a, a squash player, uh, and and uh, and so that, in a way, that's the process of acculturation that Harvard has overseen. And w- w- by by the time your, uh, you know, you know you. Uh, you know, your grandfather was a rag picker. Your father was, uh, you know, a real estate uh, investor. Uh, you know, you then are, are the, uh, you know, person who took riding lessons. Um, that's when Harvard is happy to take you in in very large numbers. Uh, and yeah, yeah, you know, I, you know, Wes, I got to say, I think about this. I think about this from the perspective of my own experience. Uh-huh. Even though you know, when you're when you're white in America, you don't tend to think too 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 much, or at least I, I've never about your own ethnic background. Yeah. You know, my, my, my grandfather came to this country when he was three from Italy and my yeah. father was the first member of his family to go to college. Yeah. Yet my father was, you know, gr- ground enough and was successful enough to give me the social capital so he could, you know, pay for me to go to the university of Chicago. 
Yeah. And that's, that's just two generations. Yeah. Right. And, and so you, when you think about that going on in Moss, I mean, I don't really think about that as an ethnic Italian experience or whatever. I think about that more as my own family's experience. Um, when you think about that going on with groups, it, it will be true that the vast majority of Asians today who are in the immigrant group will two or three generations from now have accrued to themselves some measure of that social capital, but not as much as they would have had, had Harvard not had their foot on their necks mm. and yeah. others. Yeah. And so, so they are impeding, they're impeding the access to that social capital. They're impeding the, the, that development, just like they've slowed it down for immigrant Jews in the early 20th century. Of course, immigrant Jews then obtained it and then became the incumbent group at Harvard. Uh, and, 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 so uh, Asians will become the incumbent group at Harvard. Well, uh, that's the question. Like, uh, like are these, are the, the Chinese Americans, right? They sued because, you know, they, it, it, Asians have a more, they have a different sense of meritocracy because well, of the I, I always, I always think about it. I always think about it this way. You come to this country and you're sold this line that it's way better than where you're coming from because anybody who works hard can get ahead. Yeah. And then you discover after you've, you know, done your research for a little bit um, and you're, you're on WeChat often enough that actually the whole process is stacked against you and your family and everyone like you. Mm. And it's, it's the exact opposite of what you were sold. Mm. That, that there's a statue of this lady in New York. Uh, but, but what she's telling is that she's saying, no, no, that doesn't count for you. Mm. And, and that's got to be deeply dispiriting. And, and, and you know what? They're not going to take it. And that's that's why when students for fair admissions, I, I, Edward and Will would tell me the story. They, they'd go to a meeting, you know, in, in Silicon Valley or somewhere, and they'd be talking about joining students for fair admissions, and somebody would put it out on WeChat. Mm. And it would break the website. It would break mm. the website because so many people would sign up. Yeah. And that's, that's what's that's what an, an, animating the – the TJ suit too, you know, the, the same and, and what's going on in New York. It's the same things. So New York, they have been able to keep this at bay the whole time. It remains a single test and they haven't gone to court about this. There was no, uh, they were talking, I mean, de Blasio was talking about doing something. Um, yes. but, but, but I mean, TJ did it right. And TJ did it. And then, is it going to go to Supreme Court, or I mean, it's, no? I mean, it, it's, an it's, appellate court has said. The uh, appellate court has said it's okay. I mean, it's. Yeah. I mean, frankly, the appellate court decision is just full of lies. I, 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 it's hard to find a more dishonest judicial opinion than the one that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals has rendered with respect to to, to Thomas Jefferson. Um, it's so blatantly obvious that these that the changes there were were for the purpose of limiting Asian enrollment. And again, it's the same zero-sum game concept that we go back to from Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. It doesn't even matter if the reason is you want to you want to increase one group. It's always going to come to the expense of another. And, yeah. and, and, and given the point you've made, we've made repeatedly in this conversation about where Asians are in the in the performance echelons, it's it's going to come dramatically and disproportionately at their expense, which is what happened. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with that case. We're not uh, conservative guys and. And, and, and myself, we're not involved in that. That's a different group, but God bless them. So in your view, 
when you got when you got discovery from Harvard, and I guess that had already happened by the time mm -hmm. you were recruited into the case. Mm -hmm. We were in the middle of the expert stuff when I got recruited into the case. It what it, it was the case was won when you got discovery, or you the the, the discovery demonstrated that anti Asian discrimination had happened. I think that's definitely the case. The second and the was the case one when we got discovery. I would like to believe that will way way more often than not was was um, he was right and I was wrong. Uh, way more often. So if I was going to bet as between me and my uh, my departed friend, I'd bet on him. And he believed that if we could prove that, we would have won even with. Uh, the same court that decided Fisher too. Um, with this court, the case was won in discovery for sure. When we could prove that it wasn't a factor of a factor of a factor, and when we could wrap ourselves up in in a, in a philosophically cogent and correct way of saying this is you know there's an unbroken chain of decisions. With, Brown going forward, that race discrimination is wrong. You know, we've, we had this detour. We need to get back on track. And this is a court that would be receptive to that kind of discussion and argument, whereas the old one obviously was less so. So either way, with the court that existed when Will and I had this discussion about the strategy or with the court that exists today, it ended in discovery. I think the real question is whether if it was just a factor of a factor of a factor and the discovery had shown that it was this tiny little thing, would this court have done anything about it? Justice Thomas would have. It doesn't matter how tiny it is. Yeah. Would the rest of the court? I don't know. And, and I, I guess my guess is I don't think so. If it wasn't, if it was just you couldn't prove it was that big of an impact, if it was really a factor of a factor of a factor, I think... I think we probably would have lost. And, and then what if we didn't prove they were discriminating against Asians? I think that's probably the most interesting question. Would we have won the case if we didn't prove they were discriminating against Asians? I don't know. I, it, I bizarrely hope the answer is no. I, I kind of hope that, that the, the fact that we proved that there was a smaller group of Americans that were being brutally punished in this process had something to do with the victory. Nevertheless, you, you, you won't find those words in Chief Justice Roberts's opinion. And you're left with the impression that no, it doesn't matter. Um, that, it, that race discrimination is wrong, no matter how big it is or, or to whom the, the, the anvil falls on or on whom the anvil falls. Uh, but I, I would like to believe that it was both things. It was how big the preferences are and and the discrimination against Asians. So this was a case that was designed for a different court to address mm -hmm. the Fisher court. And it was entered into largely on vibes, the sense that among some Asian Americans that had spread that maybe it's not so wise to put your race on your application because we have – feeling that counselors would tell them that it's a tougher road um, and uh, but you didn't have discovery you entered into discovery and the instant that stuff came in you saw oh my god 
This is a well, not only that, scale. they'd studied it. They'd studied it. I mean, yeah, you know, they they created they sophisticated models of their own admissions process. And you're talking about an admissions process that involves you know, forty plus people. And they handed they had, that thing over. That thing that that Fitzsimmons yep. threw away. Uh, he he even responded to it, being like, you know, okay, yeah, this, this is fine. Uh, is is that right? Well, the comms department, he, he, he initially commissioned the report. He wanted to prove two things. There wasn't an Asian penalty and that they were giving a boost for low socioeconomic status um, applicants. The report comes back, says, yes, there's an Asian penalty. Yes, we give a boost to low socioeconomic applicants. Um, by the way, the legacy preference is gigantic. Maybe we don't want the world to know about that. Um, and he's he wants to cherry pick the socioeconomic thing and go out to the public and say, well, yeah, we give a bonus to socioeconomically disadvantaged people. He wants to use part of the study. And the yeah. comms department, the comms department, so he doesn't tell anybody in the missions office, he doesn't tell his boss, but the comms people step all over him and say, no, whoa, 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 don't do that. <laughs> because then people are going to ask, how do we know? And then we're going to have to tell them, and then we're going to tell them we discriminate against Asians. That doesn't seem very on brand, so uh, or at least public brand. So, so that's why he didn't do it. And we get all that stuff. And I mean, the models that were created, you know, this gets a little bit into the details of the case, but the models that, that Peter S. Diacono created of Harvard's admissions process are way more sophisticated than what Harvard had done itself internally, but they're, they, they have the exact same conclusion and the same thrust. Um, uh, and of course, Harvard, you know, paid millions of dollars for its own model from a Nobel prize winning, uh, Economist who, unlike Peter Osdiakono, who's actually published all of his work in the peer-reviewed literature, multiple places, multiple articles, uh, David Card, Nobel Prize winner, has not actually published his report anywhere because any econo econometrics professor who looks at it knows it's a bunch of crap. Um, and that's why he won't do it. Uh, and David <laughs> Card, if you're listening, publish your stuff. See if you can get it through peer review. You will not be able to. Congratulations on the Nobel Prize. You got that after I cross-examined you. I should take some credit for it. I'm surprised you didn't name me in your acceptance speech. Go to hell. Um, so, I mean, I've heard I've heard economists that you know that it's not a proud moment. Uh, no, no, it's 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 also it's also. I mean, every time I do a major cross examination, I have to get what is it, amounts to like a mini six week you know crash course in whatever I'm doing. And so I'm not an econometrician. I don't have a PhD in economics, um, econometric analysis. But but you know, to but high school statistics students have come to me and said, um, "There's this is totally wrong. How did you not realize this is wrong?" I said, "I said, buddy, I I I know it's wrong." And they'll come they'll come up with exactly why it's wrong. High school students they'll say, "Well, you know, it's it's overfit," and that's what it means is that you can create a model that perfectly describes any system as long as you have a, a variable for every data point in the system. So it, I tried to explain this to the court. I said, you know, if, if it was a variable, is your social security number three, eight, eight, nine, one, 21, 71. And it, yes or no, that variable, if it was for all 150,000 applicants in our pool, is your social security number, what it is would perfectly predict your admission. Because if, it, if you got in, we'd say that variable says you did get in. If we got in, that variable doesn't, we can create a 150,000 variable model that is perfect for the data set and tells you absolutely nothing about reality. That's kind of what Card did. He had so many variables, he, he implausibly overfit his model to the data. The problem was, and this is, this is, you know, 
I'm not going to have a debate with a, a future Nobel Prize winner e economist about that stuff. So I love getting told how I should have cross-examined the guy by high school statistics students who are super smart. And they said, well, you really should just ask him that. And I was thinking to myself, man, if I had asked him that question, I'd have gotten some lecture that I don't understand. You wouldn't understood. The judge wouldn't understood, but it would have sounded great. Yeah. So, but it was wrong, and, uh, and, he, and he knew it was wrong. Oh, he had to have known. I mean, if you look at – there's some message discussion boards by where economists like talk about this kind of stuff. And I just look at it and laugh because, yeah, of course he knows it's wrong. I mean, of course he knows it's wrong. He has to know it's wrong. And Harvard – whether the Harvard guys know it's wrong, I mean, I don't think there's probably – you know, a, a kind of mathematical brain cell between the Harvard lawyers. So they probably didn't. They'd say, oh, well, David Card says it's fine. So it is. Janet Yellen says it's fine. So it is like Janet yeah. Yellen's an expert on this crap. I mean, yeah. it, it, but so, Janet Yellen knew it was wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, I don't know. She's not, she doesn't really do this type of analysis. Just, who knows? I mean, they all just, they all just kind of look at each other and say that David Card guy, he's Canadian, but he real, people think he's really good. So you know, he must be good. So we're just going to endorse what it's just the, the same kind of navel gazing, you know, kind of circular pr uh, praise squad. I saw somebody criticize this on Twitter the other day about how elites just constantly tell each other how great they are. Elite journalists, by the way, too, Wesley, tell each other how great they are and how important their work is. Um, that's probably some of it. But yeah, he, he had to have known it was wrong. Um, and I mean, I think the, the easiest way to explain that to somebody is, Peter's work is in the peer-reviewed literature. Card's work is not. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Supreme Court uh, generally tends to follow public opinion. Now, we have this weird split where there has all, public opinion has always uh, been against affirmative action, but it has it, it managed to live for five decades uh, on the basis of a very powerful elite consensus. Um, to what extent did um, uh, what you were able to reveal uh, in the press through your discovery and so on uh, change that elite consensus? Do you think it did at all, despite the fact that we did have this ideological succession that I'm I think, I uh, think referring to? And then on the other hand, the, the, you know, there, there was also a vote uh, you know, in California. Uh, I was just about to say. So the combination of those two things – reaffirmed where public opinion was. But do you think you actually, because I look at the way, you know, people like Matt Iglesias and Noah Smith have responded. Um, they represent a certain segment of uh, elite opinion that is kind of a little bit distinct from the successor coalition, but, you know, the kind of economistically uh, minded liberal elites, uh, you know, they're, they're not... They're not hyperventilating about this, and they're saying, no, actually, this is probably something that had to happen. Do you think that you changed that, and, or, or do you think it is changed? And, and do you see massive resistance happening, or do you see more kind of rhetoric that's going to happen in the future as a, as a, in response to this? It's, it, so I was going to bring up Prop 16 earlier in the conversation because yeah. I was genuinely surprised. So yeah. when I talked about the voting power of Asians nationally, I wasn't yeah. really reckoning with the voting power of Asians in the state of California. Um, and after the racial reckoning in 2020, um, I started to think, oh boy, are we going to win this case? Mm. And 
I mean, I, I, I sort of think, you know, this is a bad time for us to be bringing up our case. And then fast forward to Prop 16, and I was genuinely surprised by that result. And um, I don't, I don't live in California for a lot of reasons, um, but I was genuinely surprised. And I think when I saw that, I realized, wow, you know, this, this, the public perception of these things is enduring, and it can't, so you can't even go ahead. Prop 16 was a was a referendum in California to. Uh, alter their constitution, which had been altered by a prior uh, uh, referendum back in 1996 to disallow uh, any kind of affirmative action in college admissions or in state contracting. Um, and they're taking a second bite at the apple under this whole new regime and under entirely changed racial demographics, right? Like what white people were a majority of voters back in 1996 when when uh, Prop 209 passed. Um, and so there was this whole idea, that, and there was a powerful league consensus. I think they outspent the opponents by a factor of like 30 to 1 or something like that uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the you know, major corporations, lobbies, and interests that, were, that had all lined up behind uh, the resumption of affirmative action, which in the California context is actually the plurality of, of the voters, uh, if you want to see this in racial terms, uh, because it's a plurality, I think, Hispanic state, right? Taking things away from a smaller minority uh, of of, uh, of Asians, um, and nonetheless, the the supermajority that's that that uh you know that rejected the reintroduction of race racial preferences in California was just as large, I think, a little larger than it had been uh, back in '96. So, so when I saw that, I thought, "Wow, this is interesting." But, but that's the public. And once you you asked about elite consensus, yeah, you know, the guy that I think has the redemption arc here is Rick Kallenberg, mm. because I think Rick, who's been advocating, he, he, he's he's certainly not doesn't agree with students for fair admissions that we should get rid of all race preferences in in higher ed. But he just he's always advocated that socioeconomic preferences are a better vehicle to achieve. The, the goals of the people who sponsor race preferences. And I think the, the elite consensus has, has been so superficial uh, with regards to who is receiving the race preferences. Mm. And it goes back to that concept of Justice Thomas's about aesthetics, which is, you know, in the Michigan cases, Justice Thomas points out that something like two thirds of the recipients of of African-Americans receiving preferences to get into the law school were women. Only one third were men, but the law school didn't really care because they yeah. just wanted a tick that said black. And, right. and, and at the same time, you know, the, the what Kallenberg is exposed. And what I think if you knew about it, you knew is that the recipients of race-based preferences at Harvard generally really well off African-Americans and Hispanics. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. not, not just like a little bit, but they went yeah. to like Sidwell friends in, yeah. in, you know, Washington. And it, yeah. it, the, I think that's penetrating elite consensus now that mm. that also with that being out and about, you know, the, the Kallenberg redemption arc is, mm. is that no, we need to be doing more on socioeconomic preferences. Now I will say Harvard was very honest in the litigation yeah. that they do not want too many low socioeconomic uh, racial minority, low class racial minorities, or maybe even anybody at Harvard. Yeah. They like right. to brag about their financial aid packages, but their report on race neutral alternatives when they were rejecting what we were saying, what we offered 
as a race neutral alternative was get rid of the legacy and rich people preferences and boost your socioeconomic preference. So it's, it's comparable to, you know, some of your other large preferences. And then you'll get some racial, you'll get racial diversity about the same as what you have, like 11% African-American or 10. And they said, Oh, that's terrible. It's 14 right now. We said, well, it was 10% back in 2014. What's your problem? And, and, and they said, no, we don't want to do this. And it was hidden in their report. There's this line that says, this would change the socioeconomic diversity of the underrepresented groups. And what they mean is we do not want too many poor African-Americans and Hispanics at Harvard. And I don't know why they don't, but they really don't. Even if they get, you know, I don't understand why the kid that's dodging bullets on the way to school in Chicago with no textbooks who gets 1,350 on his SATs is somehow a threat to Harvard. But apparently he is. Well, I mean, um, Austin, Austin, UT Austin wanted diversity within diversity, right? They didn't want all poor black people. That the well, yes, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, it's amazing, delivers. right? Right, um, and so that hostility, I think, elite consensus doesn't won't accept that overtly. They will not. They will. Elite consensus cannot accept the idea. That it's better mm. to have rich black folks at Harvard than it is to have poor black folks at Harvard, mm. and and the more that that disjunction gets exposed, I, I think the more that elite consensus will 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 turn on on race preferences, and maybe already has a little bit. Although you know Iglesias is kind of an outlier, as you say. And also, if. Uh is being descended from a slave a race? Is, is, it, is that different than a race? Um, is that different than a race classification? I mean, I think, of course, we, we, there were non-black slaves or indentured servants uh, yeah. in America. True. Yeah. Um, I, I, for a while, I thought maybe they would try that. Um, mm. But, of course, it, it'd be doing it for the express purpose of achieving a racial objective, which is exactly yes. what Justice Roberts says you can't – Chief Justice Roberts says you cannot do. Right. But on top of that, um, I mean, wow, the the number of, of kind of recent low-generation low number immigrant African-Americans, literal African-Americans, yeah. Caribbean-Americans – that are that are the recipients of these is quite high, which kind of proves that what you just said, which is a preference for the descendants of of slaves in America, is is not substantively different from the socioeconomic preferences that they don't really like. Yeah, for the same reason, which is that it's going to result in a group that they don't want on campus being on campus. I don't know why they don't want them. They said they didn't want them. Um, so I don't know. I think that. Uh, that question was asked to my colleague, uh, I think Cam Norris. It wasn't Patrick Strawbridge. I think my colleague Cam Norris got asked that question, and he said what was right, which is if it was adopted for the purpose of changing racial stuff, it doesn't matter if it's race neutral. But by the way, it doesn't seem terribly race neutral. Um, right. So it's one of these things. Where it might be angels on a head of a pin. I, now, we're an institution to do something about you know, the, the the descendants of people who were themselves associated with the university in some way that might yeah. be different, yeah. very difficult, obviously to track those people down. Yeah. Um, but that's possible too. I mean, 
I, I think if a university announced a preference for this descendants of slaves and then chose to use as proof that you were descendants of, of slave of a slave that you were black. Yeah. That would be, you know, what are they going to do? You know, th- th- that would be expressed racial preferences right there. So I think it's, it's probably a non-starter, but who knows? Maybe somebody will try it. And so you do think this is going to have large effects beyond just the university setting. I think it will have effects on what people would describe as DEI, corporate wokeism, um, kind of industry stuff. Uh, It's. But will require further litigation or the threat of it is enough to kind of change the weather? Well, it kind of depends. I I always tell some of my friends, you know, they'll get asked to get involved in a case and I'll say, well, that program won't exist six weeks from now because you just sued them. And it's so blatantly illegal Right. That they're going to stop, and and usually I'm right about that. Um, uh-huh. I think it, I think it may require lawsuits. It probably will not require that many lawsuits that have to go the distance the way Harvard did, yeah. because again, lawyers are risk averse when they're trying to control risk that's that's not core to whatever you know client they're advising. It's not a core part of their business practice. It's not a core part of you know um, Amazon's business practice to discriminate on the basis of race and their DEI programs. Um, yeah. They should go away. Now that said, I'm I'm counsel in a class action because Amazon has a, a bunch of uh, racial preferences in its affiliates in awarding uh, it, uh, money basically to its affiliates uh, that are blatantly and flagrantly illegal in violation of civil rights laws of this country, and they're they're defending themselves. Um, so yeah, yeah. it will require. I think it's a combination of litigation, and but I think more and more of these will go without without a shot fired. So a, a, a fervor just overtook the corporate and other leadership of this country after the summer of 2020, mm-hmm. um, where all the prior restraints, they went beyond where, you know, where kind of Fisher and Gruder were. They just, they just went into territory that everybody has always known you're not allowed to do. But they all went together, all, you know, holding hands. They all went off the cliff at the same time. Uh, just because the you know the cultural contagion was so powerful, uh, and, but 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 by by taking an even stronger stance, reaffirming that 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 we that the United States is governed by a colorblind constitution, uh, that's just going to kind of remind people, oh, you guys have you're you guys are off a cliff, and it's time to kind of uh, scramble back on. Is do, do you think I, I, in general is true? I think um, it's kind of difficult to talk about this this phenomenon without talking about the culture of lawyers and their, their kind of disrespect their lawyers own disrespect for the rule of law is actually pretty profound. And, um, you know, lawyers themselves have been elite lawyers have been operating, um, in full knowledge that their behavior is illegal with respect to recruitment um, staffing of cases, often at the behest of their clients, for w- since way before the 2020 racial reckoning. Okay. And so to them, it's always been okay as long as somebody else was doing it. Uh, you know, if, if you can point it, if you can say, well, I need to do this to, to meet competition because the other firms are going to do it or because the client's demanding it, the kind of, the number of times that I have told somebody in a public setting you know, th- this is blatantly illegal. And, and they just, they don't care because no one's suing them. 
Yeah. There's no, there's no downside risk on the other side. And it's almost like, it's almost like looting, right? Yeah. The reason why looters loot is they know that very few of them are going to get caught. Yeah. Or it's, it's like when you, you know, when you storm, when you storm the castle, because you just have overwhelming numbers. So, well, what's the chance I'm going to get picked off by the archers for zero or like one in a thousand, I'll do it. And, yeah. and now all of a sudden, you know, the, the, it's like that, um, like that line in 300 you know our arrows are going to blot out the sun uh i think there's gonna be a lot more arrows in the air these people even the lawyers who are remarkably immune to to the idea that the rule of law should have should should mean something um they will be risk averse and scared and it won't just be edward bloom out there there's going to be money to be made in in suits like this and when there's money to be made there were lawyers that would try to make money and I think you'll see a lot of this going away. I mean, soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and mostly because this just sends a signal about where the court is, or did this actually change the doctrine and the law in a way that is I think, I think it, 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 when you look at Justice Gorsuch's opinion, which offers an interpretation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, yeah. um, that, that interpretation would apply um, almost ineluctably logically to Title VII, which is where you know a lot of the juice is, and also to Section 1981 uh, uh, of, which is the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Um, you know, Title VII has some exceptions for approved affirmative action, remedial affirmative action policies, but generally prohibits race discrimination and sex and sexual orientation, um, as interpreted by the court. Um, Section 1981 or Civil Rights Act of 66, 1866 prohibits race discrimination in private contracting. That interpretation that the court offered in students for fair admissions almost assuredly applies outside of these environments. Um, you know, the Grutter decision had been sort of comprehensively misused to apply to areas where the court had never extended it, like K-12 education or, uh, you know, who's going to be on a law review? And people would say, well, you know, nobody's suing us and we can just say Grutter diversity. It's okay. Um, that is that taking that away from them is the number of internal memoranda that would cite the Grutter decision as a reason to do something that had nothing to do with college admissions or law school admissions, but had to do with, you know, some DEI program at a corporation or some, you know, employment goal. I mean, look at the number of corporations that have said expressly United has said, we're going to have X percent of our pilots are going to be this race by this year. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Illegal. Yeah. No, just no question. And some some white or Asian pilot is going to sue them, and they are going to lose. But I guarantee you, the the memo that said this is okay cited Grutter. Mm-hmm. And now so, the memo that says, "Hey, maybe we should rethink this," will right. cite Students for Fair Admissions against Harvard. So there's a there's a baseline legal realism among lawyers where it's illegal if I'm being sued. Uh, and there's a chance that I'm going to lose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and in the absence of that, uh, we have discretion. And then we have this thing that we can cite uh, in, in this kind of wonky decision th- that the court did. It was wonky, but it also said, oh, we're going to end this in 25 years. Right. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, don't 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 discount the kind of midwittery of lawyers, too. Right. So, so it, well, it's now, both, now that I'm paying attention to gender affirming care decisions, I, I'm seeing it. it's like <laughs> these people just, they just read a blog, they just read Buzzfeed and they put it in their decisions. And it's both, it's both mendacious. 
It's yeah. both mendacious and incompetent. Right. Uh, and figuring out the distribution between the two is is not is not terribly fruitful. But um, you know, amongst lawyers, I think particularly the elite ones at the large corporations, the big firms, it was mendacious. I mean, you, right. you could you could lay it out flat for them that this was illegal. There are articles, there are published stuff saying this all this stuff's illegal. They didn't care because if you're not being sued, it's not illegal. Um, right. And and this will. I mean, one thing that I think this will change is this will embolden people to sue. Yeah. Um, this will embolden people who have been obviously discriminated against to take a stand because because they've got they've got this to hang on to. Um, so you wouldn't think have sued in the past because uh, social death would be the cost, right? Like you, you would and this, become this employable will, forever. And, this will lower and, the yeah. And the the prospects of it were uncertain enough, uh, given what the court had said in 2003 and 2015, that uh, it, it wasn't worth the risk. Uh, or, or I think think about it think about it this way. I mean, going back to your comment about gender affirming care decisions, you know the the you there, there was something that a, that say your trial judge could hang their hat on enough that you couldn't be guaranteed of a victory, even if you were the victim of race discrimination because of some DEI program. Yeah. And it wouldn't have made any sense, and and it and it wouldn't have been right. But there was at least something. Now that there's not anything, it, it, it opens the doors a little bit, um, and I think that it will. It will, and I think also the, you know, the, the, the cultural phenomenon here, the social death thing might not be as significant. I mean, I think the Supreme Court does have an effect on the way people view stuff, and that will potentially mitigate the social death, or people will be willing to to put themselves out there a little bit. I mean, look at these, some of these Asian kids that are in students for fair admissions. I mean, you look at what happened to Abigail Fisher and the abuse that she suffered for being the face of this movement for a while. And then you look at, you know, many of our members are anonymous um, because of that. But then you look at the few, some of us, uh, you know, like Calvin Yang, who spoke at our press conference, who are willing to get out there and, and you see, you know, what they're going through and the, their willingness to do that, I think, can only increase because we won. Everybody yeah. wants. I mean, it's not. It's not. It's, I'm not saying everybody wants to be a winner, but it it helps when you're when you're winning. Yes. Now, you're saying that Will was he was more optimistic than you were about the prior court being able to mm -hmm. being able to win with that court. Do you think that, but for the Trump victory? Uh, did, did Donald Trump deliver this victory to you by changing wow. by giving you three by giving you three justices? Did Donald Trump deliver this victory? Certainly, it would have been a it, it would have been a not as narrow. It would have been a more narrow victory under the prior. Yeah, I think that that the, that second thing it has to be true. Yeah, but y you know, Will has to have been right. I just think we still would have won. <laughs> I, he was, I mean, I can't underscore for you the number so of times. So winning changes your baseline, but you now feel that, that in fact, you could have gotten Kennedy to be like, oh, th these facts are so drastically different than what I said was okay. I guess, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. I couldn't yeah. have gotten him to do it, but Will Consovoy could have, and maybe nobody else in the world could have. I mean, he was a, he was an advocate, um, 
quite unlike any other. So if you if you give me the same court in the counterfactual, you'll give me my friend back, and he'll argue the case, and we would have won. Mm. Because what because because it was just the facts were just so different than what universities were saying they were doing. Because Harvard had been lying to the court going all the way back to seventy eight. You know, it, its description of its own admissions process. I mean, there was this joke. I, I don't know if you were there that day in the trial. The the, the, the district judge did not get my joke, but Harvard mentioned. Um, Harvard's lawyers would mention almost every day that the Backey decision said Harvard was a was a model um, or something. There's some phrase in the Backey decision about Harvard the model or Harvard. You know, the, and by the time it got to the second week of the trial, the third week or whatever, and I was cross-examining David Card, one of my first questions to him was, have you read this Backey decision? And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, did you know they called Harvard a model? And I said it in exactly that tone of voice, kind of sarcastically. And the judges gave me this look. She didn't know what I was meant. And I think, you know, a bunch of us, including the Harvard lawyers, were talking to her at a break. I said, did you like my joke? And she said, what was the joke? I said, Harvard, the model, and back. I mean, it's just, such, it's just a joke. And she looked at me like, no, 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 that's serious. And I said, it's a joke. Like, so they've been holding themselves out, you know, as we race is just this tiny little thing in this holistic admissions process, trust us, from 78 through the Grutter decision all the way through to – you know, now, and what Will thought was when you prove that they were lying and they've been lying to the court since 78, that would be enough for Kennedy to say, oh, that's it. You know, but this is the same guy who said race could be a plus, always a plus and never a minus in a zero sum emissions game. And I mean, I appreciate that Chief Justice Roberts didn't want to dump on Kennedy too hard, but I mean, that's just, that's, that's just idiocy. So, so I don't know. Everything that ended up being decisive in this case was handed to you in discovery by Harvard. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, I guess there's a world in which you'd win the case by just Harvard admitting it used race at all, but that goes back to the conversation we had earlier. I mean, I think that kind of defies logic. Um, something had to have changed between, or the court had to be able to point to something different and they could point to something here and point to how big these preferences were and their disproportionate adverse impact, obviously the result of intentional discrimination against Asians. I think that that's the change. And, and Justice Alito mentioned this in Fisher and, and he you know, sort of shined a light on it. And, and I, the idea that then that was a dominated at oral argument. It was a big, big discussion of it at oral argument. I think that, those two things are, are the reason that we won. But yes, I think we would not have won had Harvard not turned over the goods. And, you know, by the time that they had already turned over the goods, they could not make the claim that it's a tip for two otherwise. Right? Oh, they like still that. they still tried to. They still tried to. I mean, uh, it, it just, you couldn't, you couldn't make it work with the statistics. I mean, it's just, they they would try to say it's just a fact. I mean, they said it. They said it in the Supreme Court. But when you looked at the number, otherwise indistinguishable candidates. But the it's just so. How could you say that with a straight face? And yet you I cannot. Guess, I guess that's what you get yeah. paid for as a lawyer to do. But. Well, yes. I mean, I mean, sometimes some people have called lawyers coin-operated lying machines. I don't <laughs> like to consider myself one because I haven't made any money on this case and haven't lied. <laughs> But they, uh, that's a claim that they continue to maintain. And so long as you maintain that, but you also have the statistical record, you, you, 
Well, if you keep the statistical record out of sight, as they did for the longest time, um, then you can say it. You can lie in amicus briefs to the Supreme Court over and over and over again because no one's checking you. Then you get sued. And and that, I think, is one of the reasons that Will and Edward chose Harvard is that it had to be Harvard because they're the ones that had started this holistic admissions nonsense. And they're the ones that had told the court, don't trust us. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts says – Trust us. You know, they said, trust us. But whoa, you know, they've given us, no, you look at it now, there's no reason to trust them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what the discovery proved. So the, you know, I was there for a few days of the trial and you were talking about the personal rating and that's what a lot of the reporting hinged around. That stuff mm-hmm. didn't really make it into the decision. So how did the, how did the case change, you know, in between what you argued and presented to the original district court uh, to the decision that we got. And, you know, there are these criticisms of the, uh, you know, you have all these liberal uh, outlets. They're not using the word Asian at all. Claudine Gay's, um, you know, that new president of Harvard statement, she didn't use the word Asian at all. Uh, And so they just aren't saying Asian and they're presenting it as, as uh, you know, still a black, white issue. Um, but at the same time, the, the judges didn't linger on the Asian stuff that much themselves either. So how do we get from what you argued in 2018 to what ended up being decided? Well, I think there's sort of two points there. I'll start with the end, which is the court's decision. I think the, the best reading of the court's decision is they take it as read that there was discrimination against Asians because it's so bloody obvious. And and I think they I, – I, I, I mean, I struggle with this and whether the court has, an, has a has – a, the court also often is criticized for its use of historical evidence and its originalist jurisprudence to, de- to decide legal questions. But there's a different question of whether the court has a responsibility to, to, in addition to deciding the case, declare something to be historically true. Um, and quite clearly, you know, the, this court didn't feel compelled to, to go into great detail about what had happened and will leave it to others to decide what happened. Now, I'm quite confident that the others will decide that, that there'll be the next Jerome Carabell. And it's just inescapable. Peter's put together the data. The, the, there's the internal reports. There's, no one is going to think that Harvard didn't discriminate against Asians. Literally no one. I mean, 20 years from now, I guess the question is, when? what's the over-under on when Harvard's going to apologize for it? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they took them a very long time to apologize for the Jewish quotas. A very mm-hmm. long time. Yeah. I think there's still like a statue of Lowell somewhere at the campus or something that probably still is. Um, and they they have correspondence from Lowell being like, we got to keep the Jews down. Uh, yeah, I, we, I we don't have I, that in this case. No, but I but I think I think um, the information age is different from the early 20th century. I think uh, I will predict that Harvard will apologize for its discrimination against Asian applicants by 2040. Mm. Um, and I, hopefully I'll still be alive to see it. Now, with that said, now let's go back. How did the case, yes, how did the case change? Yeah. When you're in a trial court, one of the very first things I said to Judge Burroughs, um, probably not the day that you were there, but maybe it was, I said that affirmative action is not on trial here. I said that yeah. in, in the, because, of course, and the Gina Gretter decision. And New Yorker also. Yeah. The Gretter decision was on the books, and one of our claims was overrule Gretter. You can't get a trial judge. You can't in our system. You can't get a trial judge to do that. So we're going to talk about the law as it is, not as we would like it to be. And 
a lot of that revolved around our claims that Harvard had discriminated against Asians. If Grutter is no longer the law, as the court has essentially said, it's no longer the law, then, then the, then non-discrimination against Asians is subsumed within the result. But when we left the trial court and started to go upwards, uh, the, you know, students for fair admissions has never been, uh, shy about its goals. Uh, the case took on more of a, we need to change the law because, and I, I mean, for a while when I was practicing my, my opening, I had this, there was versions of it where I just said, you know, and it, it ultimately came, this came together in a way in the opening, which is, you know, we, we basically agree on the law, but don't agree on the facts when it comes to Asian discrimination. And then we, agree on the facts, but don't agree on the law when it comes to race neutral alternatives. But the reality is I wanted to be able to tell the judge that the law in the United States prior to this decision that just came out last week was quotas are illegal, except they're not. Yeah. And, you know, that, that, that pretty, I wanted to be able to say that. So the law is so hopelessly ambiguous that I don't, you can do whatever you want. And, you know, that got dialed back and dialed back in my, in my opening. But there, when you were asking the question, I thought, well, you cannot go into a trial thinking you have no chance of winning it. And you have to convince yourself you can win. You have to convince yourself you got a fair shake. You're going to get a fair shake. Um, and certainly Judge Burroughs uh, tried a fair case. She allowed us to put on our case. And every day, you know, we were in there. And I was looking at her and I was thinking, we've got a shot here. Mm. We've got a shot. And what I meant by we have a shot is not that she was going to overturn Grutter, but that she was going to find Harvard discriminated against Asians. So when you were asking me a little while ago about elite consensus, you know, not every person who listens to this is going to have listened to every single time that Adam Ortar has ever talked about this case. But one of the things that was called to mind is something that I think you should, I would love to know your response to, which is I tell this story. I've told it many times. I go, it's, it's, so the trial's done in November 18. Christmas of 18, I go to Palm Beach with my wife, another family, ritzy place. And I'm just, all I'm thinking about is the trial, you know. And um, I, I go to the bar to wait for everybody. I'm early. I get a drink at the bar. And sitting next to me are two elderly white women. One is in her, well, she's not elderly, she's, now, now, now I'm thinking I'm 48 and geez, I'm not that old. Um, she's in her mid sixties. The other one's in her eighties. Um, the one in her mid sixties is a professor at a very prominent business school. And we get to talking cause I'm just alone sitting there. And they start, of course I started telling about the case and I explained the case. I explained the personal rating. I explained the discrimination against Asians. It takes me maybe five minutes. And then the woman, the professor, this is very elite consensus woman says, well, wait a second. You know, isn't my Johnny was so much more well-rounded than all the Asian kids he went to this elite high school with. So it's, isn't it true that, that Asians should get worse personal ratings? And this was her immediate response. And so there's a general, when you talk about elite consensus, I think going back to the conversation we had before, it's kind of impossible not to talk about the, the generational divide here. It is still okay in a bar in Palm Beach in 2018 
for a 65 year old white woman to imply that Asians have worse personalities and she's an elite. And, you know, no kid, no white kid that went to the university of Chicago between the years 1992 and 1996, when I was there would say that I I'm 0% chance, nor would any kid who went to Harvard between 1992 and 1996, I'm sure say that. And the federal and judge so, can put into a footnote, oh, maybe, maybe they do. <laughs> I, you know, that I, I, I have the greatest degree of respect and affection for the judge, but that is yeah. in that footnote. And, and I, I will say to myself, I did not realize that it, it was impossible for me, you know, and, and, and even to the exclusion, not to exclusion, but different from my colleagues, you know, I, 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 as a high school student, studied Chinese and went to China. You know, in the in the eighties, in the like right after Tiananmen, I, in the early nineties, I was in China studying, um, and I spent a lot of time there. I, I obviously was in this like Asian fraternity in college. I knew all these guys. I, I, I'm not the average person, even of my generation, in that respect. So I was a little bit blinded to what people might think. Um, and it just, it's just, it's just funny. It's just funny. The idea that the idea that Wesley Yang and Jay Kang and, and Jeannie Sook were all the same person. <laughs> they're all, they're all, they're all just, they're all boring, you know, just, or my buddies from college, you know, they're all, they're all just boring dudes. I mean, I, I just, it, 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 you laugh, we're both laughing, but that, that sentiment exists. It's, it's, it's going to die. You know that 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 elite consensus settlement is dying, and that has something to do with the social capital transition we talked about earlier with immigrant groups developing social capital and entering those elite spaces. Yeah. But it's got a lot more to do with the fact that you know University of Chicago was like twenty percent Asian or something when I went there, or more, and all my yeah. buddies were, and and you can't. I mean, this is a great joke. Um, growing up, you know we. My daughter's an only child, so we call everybody, you know, cousins. Yeah. And uh, you know, so I've got uh, one of her god, one of her godmothers is Filipina. The other one is Bengali Indian, lives in England, and of course their kids are Asian, right? Filipinos and and and, and Indian children, and um, so they're all cousins. And then of course she's got her actual Chinese American cousins. And so for the longest time, she, she's three years old and we're in the drop-off line and she sees some Asian kids in front of her at the drop-off line at the University of Chicago Lab School. And she says, those are my cousins. Yeah. And you realize that for, for a while she was interpreting, she interpreted that if you were Asian, you were her cousin. And, and um, I guess I shouldn't have been the, the person who thought that everybody was going to have the same views that, that, that I had developed um, in, in my life experience about this issue, but ultimately it will be elite consensus that I'm sure of that 65 yes. year old woman is now 70, mm. um, five years later this Christmas yeah. and she will not live to be a hundred. Yeah. Right. And people like me and you, both of us yes. 48, you right. know, while we don't make the elite consensus, even the people that are our peers who do make the elite consensus yes. do not believe this crap about Asians being boring. Do you know anybody who believes it who's your age? Name name one person who believes it who's your age. Right. You can't. No. You can't. 
And so we're going to win. We're going to win that issue. And the book, and that's why Harvard will, will apologize by 2040. You heard it here first. Uh, and the, the kind of, uh, the liberal, uh, meltdown, uh, does this add to, the, I mean, it's like, okay, Dobbs and then, and then this, uh, you know, delegitimation of the court and so on. Um, it, it doesn't seem like the frenzy is going to be the same or, or is it going to be the same? Uh, I don't think it's going to be the same. I mean, you know, what's, what's interesting is I got, so I've traveled all over the country, you know, speaking about students for fair admissions, not just speaking anywhere. And if, you know, particularly at law schools and, um, you know, I'm always hoping that, that some people show up and, and say nasty things or protest or something. I went to Stanford like a few weeks after the, you know, great incident, um, with where they shouted down a judge thinking, oh, I'll get some protesters. Um, and I didn't, I'm always trying. Uh, and what I was told by the kids at Stanford was, well, no, 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 you don't understand. Race stuff doesn't matter. This, this, this kind of stuff doesn't matter as much to people anymore. What really matters is, is, um, the, the, uh, gender ideology. So, so where you really get people animated for whatever reason today is gender ideology. Um, they're not as into this uh, race stuff anymore. And maybe that's a little bit in comparison of 303 creative and the freak out about that versus the freak out about our case. So they spent 24 hours freaking out about our case. And now they, then they so moved on. It's a bigger, it's a bigger creative. freak out 303. You think? Or yeah, I think so. But the delegitimization of the court thing, I mean, that, yeah, that I think is gotta be driven by Dobbs. And you, yeah. you know, I'm, I mean, I'll confess, I'll just never understand the, the, how, how zealous people can get about, you know, killing babies. But um, I read the other day that 10,000 children were born in Texas because Texas banned abortion, uh, you know, almost a year before the Dobbs decision. I'm thinking to myself, who really wants those 10,000 kids dead? Mm. Um, you know, uh, but apparently some people wish they were never born. Um, so I, I do think a lot of the delegitimization of the court comes from dissatisfaction with Dobbs. Um, I guess the, the, the question you should ask is if, if the liberals took over the court, will they get rid of students for fair admissions? Mm. And I think the answer to that is on the time scale that the liberals would take over the court elite consensus will have gone the Iglesias route and they won't. Mm. Because, uh, you know, we, we had a natural experiment, uh, with the UC system. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know how much it's penetrated public consciousness, but um, the class that entered uh, the year after they, they, they had they had fewer uh, blacks and Hispanics at the flagship schools, but the but the percentage of blacks and Hispanics in the overall system who are not diminished they had just been redistributed to other schools um, in absolute numbers they graduated at a higher rate. Um, and so that that's pretty close to being a kind of natural demonstration of of the mismatch effect, right? That, yeah, uh, and, uh, I mean, actually, uh, absolutely. Go, go, um, going to a school where you are sort of uh, you know more matched to the pace at which the curriculum moves results in higher, better performance, uh, and 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 of course. The graduates of that school uh, do not have to deal with the uh, the stigma that even Michelle Obama, in the course of um, 
in the course of uh, attacking this decision and defending affirmative action, she opened it. Uh, I, I don't know if you read her statement by saying, oh, I, I often had to wonder whether I really belonged. Um, and then said, oh, in the end, you know, it was worth it to, uh, to be there. Uh, but, um, but we do have this natural experiment showing that no, like th this is not excluding black and Hispanic kids from higher education. It is, and, and in fact, in that case, it actually resulted in higher success rates. Well, so, you know, so why will that not end up, uh, if that ended up, uh, proving to be the case under this regime, would it not, uh, would it not shift the elite consensus? I think, I think it, it, it should prove to be the case and it, and it will shift elite consensus. The thing that I kept thinking about as you were talking is when you start having that discussion is you'd be remiss not to have a discussion about HBCUs and where they can or should fit in. And, uh, you know, one of your colleagues, Adam Harris over the Atlantic mm -hmm. is the one who really opened my eyes to, um, to kind of the bad deal that HBCUs have gotten historically in this country um, and, and how they could really be a source of, of tremendous benefit to the country should they be properly funded and, and, and resourced and backed by, you know, the, the wealthy, the super wealthy who can transform an institution, but also by, you know, governments appropriately um, and legally checked in, in so doing. But the, the, I, I remember having this conversation with um, a buddy of mine, who's a very prominent lawyer, went to uh, Morehouse. And I said, well, you know, it's funny, I've known you for X decades, never asked you about, you know, reflecting on why Morehouse. And he said, you know, and this was really interesting, and it doesn't come out, I think, in any of the briefs on the subject of the court. He said, well, it was great because we had all kinds of kids. We had kids who liked comic books and kids who liked opera and kids who liked heavy metal and kids who, you know, liked uh, science fiction or whatever. Uh, every kind of kid, but everybody's black. So it was the first time I got to just be a kid who liked these things and had this set of characteristics and was this yeah. religion mm -hmm. and not a black kid. First yeah. and foremost. Right. And that brings me back to the very first page of the reading guidance for Harvard admissions officers. The very first page is yeah. exclusively devoted to what race the applicant is. Yeah. Mm. And when, when you think about other people race first, or even when you think about yourself race first, yeah. I, mean, I don't know about you. I rarely think about the fact that I'm white. Yeah. And that's, that's a, it's in, you talk about privilege. Yeah. That's a privilege. Right. Um, and I don't know how often you think about your own race when you're thinking about yourself, but when you think about others and when you think about yourself, the freedom to not think about race is, is incredibly liberating. You, it's about you. Yeah. By, by default. That's the baseline kind of reasoning. It's yeah. I mean, like, I, oh, was I, it about? I, I, I've said this before. I mean, the very first time I was ever called out for my race ever in the context of the legal profession ever yeah. was by Harvard's lawyers. Mm. <laughs> in the case itself because they couldn't resist they had to talk about how we had an all-white legal team yeah all the time mm. and mm. and you know that of course was was not true one of our team members uh mike park is korean but he had yeah. been nominated to the federal bench um and had his had had his confirmation hearing so he couldn't do anything in court he's sitting in the back 
but they had all these, look at this, look at this all white crew. And they said it so many times. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, I, I, that, that, that was one millisecond of the taste of what it must feel like to be identified on the basis of your race every day and in every way. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, I don't know. What else should we talk about? Um, what do you want to say thing. about this? That, uh, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm interested to see where things go. Um, I, I wonder, you know, if you're going to have to come up with a theory of when the successor ideology can evolve, it's not going to be a revolution, but can evolve to eject one of its former principles. Um, you know, kind of discard it like a, like a, it's cutting off a tumor or something because they're going to have, I, I, if you're right, that elite consensus or if we're right, that elite consensus is going to ultimately say that this decision was needed, then that's going to be the first time the successor ideology really turns on itself a little bit. Mm. Um, and that's interesting. That's going to be an interesting moment instead of kind of accreting to itself more ideas, you know, it goes from critical race theory to critical gender theory or, or gender ideology, you know, and they've, they've added on, they've never subtract, what do they subtracted? You know, they've mm-hmm. never, they've never gotten rid of something. Um, so yeah. if they do in fact get rid of something, what will that mean? And this is, um, you know, so there's, uh, I don't know if you know, you know who Richard Hanania is, right? He's this, Oh, I uh, do. He was a law student at the University of Chicago. Oh, okay. So he's, uh, he's a kind of, uh, he's become a right-wing gadfly. And, you know, he sort of argues about, um, uh, about how successor ideology or, you know, wokeness is basically grounded in civil rights law. And uh, you have to you have to attack the underlying substructure of civil rights law. This decision is operating within civil rights law. And Although you could arguably say it attacks the last twenty years of underlying substructure too. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so I, I think it, I think Hanania is missing the fact that the, the earlier discussion we had about lawyers who can't respect the rule of law. So right. we have a we have a, a, a descriptive matter. We have a, a world, a DEI world, which is totally non-reflective right. of civil rights law. Yes. Oh, I just got a link. Hold on. Mm-hmm. Lawsuit challenges Harvard legacy admissions alleging racial discrimination. Mm. Activists sue Harvard over legacy admissions. A mm. civil rights group is challenging legacy admissions at Harvard, saying the practice discriminates against students of color by giving an unfair boost to the mostly white uh, mm. children of alumni. Mm. Lawyers for Civil Rights, a nonprofit based in Boston, filed the suit Monday. God bless them. Yeah, it violates the Civil Rights Act. Well, they're going to have to say we have all these uh, legacy of colors, right, in order to defend themselves. Well, they will. I mean, uh, frankly, wow. They asked the U.S. Department of Education to declare the practice illegal and force Harvard to abandon it. Is it a lawsuit? Hold on. A separate campaign is urging the alumni to end it. I don't know if it's if it's says it's a suit. But then they're talking about the Department of Education. Who knows? Maybe they filed a complaint with DOE, too. Wow. Good luck. Good luck, Harvard. I hope you lose. <laughs> you are about to embark upon the great crusade. Hey, 
the old myth. The eyes of the world are upon you. Not the classroom theory. No I saw it happen. And then begin to inculcate our babies with these notions. Do you have a martyr complex? Let me tell you, we all make Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Your task will not be an easy one. The road ahead will be long. We're going to make sure that society wins.